Good afternoon, the panel are ended national. We are on iHeart, on Spotify, iTunes as well. You can get us there now. Just traffic for you. Uh, that crash on State Highway 16 Northwestern Motorway, there was a road closure at uh, um, Kurapas 3 that was closed eastbound between Wellesley Street and Grafton Road uh, because of a crash. That has just reopened at 5 past 4. So uh, State Highway 16 Northwestern Motorway just reopened. Also looking into Christchurch here uh, due to a crash. This is uh, State Highway 74, Burwood, Canterbury. Due to a crash, lanes are blocked at the State Highway 74, Burwood Road intersection. Do expect delays. We will keep you abreast and up to date of traffic across the country here on uh, the panel. Uh, Big response regarding around the world, wherever you lived, what was the rail network like there? Um, Trams in Basel were superb in timing and frequency. London British Rail Trains, okay with a few cancellations, but nothing the boss would blow up about. Trams in Belgium and the Netherlands were just great and spacious. So to this, uh, uh, on our first story with Alan McElroy and Victoria McLennan, there has been a call uh, for a government inquiry into Auckland's rail network, this following a string of failures this year, which has frustrated commuters. This was from the front page of the New Zealand Herald this morning. A recent issue has been a halt due to the heating of the rail tracks. The latest was a halt to trains for 20 minutes to half an hour for another technical issue yesterday. It was signal issue issue failure, inconvenient, but did not put passengers and staff at risk. Re- reliability of the train system has been a thorn in the side of Auckland's commuters. One Auckland councillor saying, quote, the government only just invested $330 million to finally upgrade track network, but it feels like less resilient than before. So what will be the issue tomorrow? Uh, with us is Niall Robinson, uh, Public Transport Users Association Chair. Niall, welcome to the... Neil, rather. Neil, welcome. Yeah. Hello, Wallace. How are you? And um, hello to Alan and Victoria, too. Hi. Yeah, great, um, great to have you on. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's a mess. And I think Aucklanders are sort of getting quite fatigued uh, with the fact that their their railway is never running properly, there's always rebuilds going on. It's closed in the weekends. It's closed during the holidays. It goes on and on and on and on. Um, uh, the people you talk about your state highway 16 because uh, you know the people at Huapai they can't even get a little shuttle to take them up to Swanson to get be a part of the railway system up there. That always gets blocked by AT, um, and uh, for no good reason um, they actually commute on a two lane lane road out of. Uh, QMU, uh, 36,000, uh, 37,000 cars on the transmission gully's only got 36,000 cars on it. So, um, yeah, so what we're, one, what we're really concerned about is the fact that, um, since we've had the kind of the, the, the deconstruction of the railway system in Auckland, uh, we've actually ended up with a very, very dysfunctional system. And public transport has got so many people into it, but uh, the rail is worst of the lot. You've got one New Zealand uh, run, or one Auckland running the running the system. You've got AT that owns the, the, the parts of the infrastructure. Kiwi Rail that owns the actual rail part of it and uh, does all the maintenance. And you've got Auckland Council trying to sort of, uh, you know, deliver to their people uh, through these different organisations and pulling their hair out as they do. 
and um, and I, I I think that the Auckland Council themselves are very frustrated yeah. by the fact that this doesn't that, work. That, or that, that that sort of mismatch, if you like, or that sort of a cross responsibilities was really highlighted quite well. I thought in the uh, in this Herald uh, article. Before I go to both Alan and Victoria, do, do you worry that this puts numbers commuter numbers on rail at risk? People go, gosh. What's the point? I'll just stay in my car. Um, well, I, I honestly believe that at the moment in, in New Zealand, there's a, a, a real sort of anti-rail. I think Kiwis on the whole love their railway and they want a railway. But they look at um, <clears throat> these sort of functions that are going on in Auckland. Even Wellington itself has had problems in recent times. Uh, these are the sort of things none of us grew up with. And uh, these are, are, are recent problems and so forth. And uh, even this rail ferry problems are a real, you know, debacle. Quite Funny hard. you say that, Neil, because I've got one. I lived in Auckland 50 years ago, and the train system, fantastic. I could get on a train in Henderson and go to Helensville or Wellsford, even Kaitaia. Stay there, Neil. Let's bring Victoria in. Yeah, Neil, yep. I'm sitting here on the Kapiti Coast, and I'd have to say we in Wellington are just as frustrated with our rail issues um, as you Aucklanders are, possibly not quite as frequently, but the number of bus replacements because there's something going on with the tracks or signals is absolutely crazy. Um, Wallace just mentioned, and, and, and you also talked about the issues with um, rail ferries, and I just wonder, should we be thinking about this a little bit more holistically and have um, transport on the sea between ports taking freight from Auckland to Wellington, for example, or to Christchurch or to other other ports rather than it all being dependent on rail? Um, oh, there is there is a certain amount of coastal stuff that goes on at the moment and um, a lot of that is very, very cheap because they're using what they call blue water ships and they actually put containers onto the blue water ships which are uh, international ships and, uh, and, and they can add to their load. It, it, it's just um, cherry on the pie for them and they can take stuff all the way down. But no, the easiest and quickest way is, is always by rail and it's also the most uh, reliable way. And uh, ships do get caught in storms, especially these international so ones, and, and freight yeah. gets, gets late. So it's just so, a reliability issue that we're all right. suffering from at the moment, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's the reliability part of it needs to be fixed. And, uh, and this, this is why we need an inquiry at the moment. There's nothing wrong with rail ferries. Um, in fact, we need rail ferries, and, uh, and this latest decision is actually taking that away. And what will happen there is that everything will go onto the road. And that's what we don't want. And uh, we really want to use our rail system, especially in times of trying to uh, you know, reduce our emissions. Okay. And there's a lot less pollution with ra- uh, trains and so forth. It's the best way to move things. Alan. Uh, but the problem with rail oh, is sorry. that it always does uh, stuff for other people. It's best, you know, it makes your roads safer. It cuts down on road damage <laughs> and, and it lowers the emissions and, and meets our Paris climate, climate accords and so forth. Let's, but uh, the Neil, rail itself can be a little bit costly. I just yeah. want to bring uh, Alan McElroy into this as well, Alan. Sure. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Like, I love trains, uh, you know, and, then, and I grew up in Dublin. We have a great train uh, yeah. set up there and to travel around the country as well. Really? You can go most places and, and same in the UK. Yeah. I was just in New York a couple of weeks ago and it was baffling that two hours out of the city, we could get a train right into the city and could go anywhere 
pretty easily and just use your 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 like your EPOS card to tap on and tap off. It just made sense and. Uh, so what I'm confused is how come the trains used to be good here? You, you, two of you said that the train system used to be good. Why? What happened? I honestly don't know. Um, or I probably do. We went into free market economics and so forth. And what they did is the government is pulled out of responsibility for providing public transport. Oh. They've handed that over to all the local bodies, the local yeah. councils, who've got very limited funds. And so immediately everything was withdrawn. Then they privatised the railway, and even in private times, actually, the long-distance passenger trains were actually making a little bit of money for them. But when it all collapsed down and so forth, gradually those trains were sort of picked off one by one and just, just taken out of service. And uh, Long history, and, and, long and, history. Uh, yeah. 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 There's no actual sense of public transport now in New Zealand. Uh, especially long-distance public transport. We don't have it. It doesn't really exist. Yeah, that's crazy. Everything is for profit, and it's a silly idea. Okay. What people don't realise is that one in 30% of the population are young, old, disabled, uh, or poor, and it's that people, that group of people have absolutely no transport connectivity at all because they, you know, because they can't drive cars. Really interesting to have you on, Neil. Uh, people are very interested in this topic. So for now, kia ora. I really appreciate your time. That's uh, Neil Robertson, uh, Public Transport Users Association Chair. Um, yeah, they, they keep on coming here. What's uh, What a couple of those. Yeah, I lived in Hong Kong for more than a decade and used the MTR for years. During the rush hours down the Nathan Road corridor, think Main Road down Kowloon into Sim Sha Tsui, trains ran at... 30 second intervals uh, as an engineer working on MTR projects I can tell you that uh, you did need a large population in a confined area what you do beyond that is you have a lot of 16 seated buses that stop anywhere and pick up passengers and take them to the nearest MTR station so um, wonderful wonderful response from listeners including some really interesting solutions so uh, I really do appreciate that keep those coming 2101 is the way you can get us here by text you can email me to thepanel at rnz.co.nz 18 past 4 Friday's panel we have Victoria McLennan and Alan McRoy I'm Wallace Chapman we are living in the future when it comes to the climate. The world had a target to limit the rise to under 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average, but humanity has experienced its first year of living at that temperature. The 1.5 degrees goal was set after a landmark 2018 report laid out laying out how much worse the damage to people, nature and property would be from 2 degrees Celsius of heating versus staying at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Last year was the warmest year on record by quite a margin. To explain this for us, we had climate scientist Nathaniel Melia of Climate Prescience. Nathaniel, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Good to be here. Give us an explain, Nathaniel, for our audience why is that 1.5 degrees Celsius number seen as important? So, so the 1.5 degrees Celsius was, was seen as kind of a halfway step between uh, where, where we were-ish when the Paris Agreement was set and this 2 degrees target, which um, was the big goal and still is the big goal of the Paris Agreement to try and keep pre-industrial warming um, 
to lower than two degrees, so to stop reaching that that mark. So this 1.5 degrees is kind of a political threshold, and it's it is, it's a check mark. Mm. Now, there's there's nothing special from the climate system's point of view about 1.5, but but. As we do increase these increments through 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, 1.5 and onwards, what we see is is extreme weather events um, will continue to get worse at a faster rate than that linear rate. Um, And also sea level rise, you can almost draw it like a ruler, just will continue to go up for our Pacific neighbours. You wrote an opinion piece uh, on the, very interesting actually, you said that this has a direct bearing on what we're seeing seeing now in terms of wildfires and indeed how we strategize on dealing with wildfires, such as the recent Port Hill fires? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, so so there's, there's things like sea level rise, as I said, with a ruler which you can really um, clearly attribute towards the temperature rise. It's just a one-on-one comparison then. When you get onto extreme weather events, especially something like wildfire, it becomes a lot more tricky to draw those parallels. But there is a parallel to draw there. And as we're increasing temperature, for example, um, there's less moisture in the air. And less moisture in the air, to take one of the variables important for wildfire, that's humidity. The relative humidity decreases as the temperature increases. So when the Port Hills fire this year went off, the relative humidity was extremely low. It was 20%, which is which is just kind of, it's just mind-boggling. We had that strong northwesterly wind blowing over the Southern Alps. Something called the Fawn Effect happened, which I don't mean to explain, but basically it pissed it down on the West Coast and it was incredibly dry going down through the Canterbury Plain. So that's just one way which climate change can make wildfires more intense right. and more frequent. Victoria? Well, Nathaniel, I have a, a, a question that I'm sure is on everyone's minds. Um, I We built an eco-home in 2019, and so we're dependent on our own water capture and solar for generation and the like. But there are so many people in my life who, when I talk to them about making a difference, they just argue, oh, yeah, but until China and the US do something, there's no point in us um, contributing to climate change here in New Zealand because they just eclipse whatever we do. What's your advice for how I respond to that? Um, I, I, I would kind of say it is a personal choice and a personal choice towards a more greener path, towards more renewables. If you can afford to do it, then that is absolutely helpful. To draw a parallel within, within the Cold War with nuclear disarmament when um, the US and Russia had crazy stockpiles of nuclear weapons. It took both of them coming to the table and and writing these agreements. Now, if one of them had not shown up, then we'd still have crazy nuclear weapons levels. And it's the same sort of thing. You've got to have your, your hand in there. You've got to be um, leading. We're, we're a rich country, a relatively rich country. We need to be leading with other Western countries um, with, with, with our... our um, our will to do as much as we can within our economic means to to show leadership and lower emissions. Otherwise, we're not giving these other countries, like our Pacific neighbours, a fair chance to survive. Thank you. What's your questions or comments there, Alan McElroy? 
Uh, no, it's it's you know the people that say that sort of stuff are not going to do anything until I see you know other countries do it. But it's gotten to the stage now where you can literally point out the window and go look. <laughs> you know, it's like people are living in a movie scene now when the fires and the floods and some of the places I drove around uh, New Zealand, uh, it looked like like a post-apocalyptic scene after the storms and stuff. It's terrifying. So it's I'm baffled when people just don't pay attention. Yeah, not, well, I've got one final question, Athena, because people might ask, you know, can you explain how a, 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 such a small increase in average temperatures can have an outsized effect? Some might be listening going, oh, 1.5, so what? It's like turning my spa from 38.5 degrees to 40. I know, right, you can barely notice the difference when you put your hand out the window, but we're not talking about the temperature that we can see on our on our digital thermometers. Right. We are talking about a huge amount of energy, 90% of which at the moment is getting gobbled up by the ocean. So we're not even seeing the full ramifications of it. But the stuff that we are seeing that stays in the atmosphere, it's just a huge amount of energy that's going into the atmosphere. And we are tipping the climate into behaving in more perverse and more extreme ways, which we're really not set up to deal with. So, so, it is hard to imagine how, how these kind of fractions of a degree can make a difference, but the amount of energy is just multiple multiple nuclear bombs going off every minute worth, worth of energy, which has been accumulated every second of every day into the atmosphere. And that energy has to go places. Tropical cyclones are, are a way where the atmosphere can try and redistribute some of those energy by curling some more of them in our direction, for example. Goodness. Hey, good to have you on, Nathaniel. Kia ora. Nathaniel Mealy there of Climate Precincts, their climate scientist, explaining just what uh, a 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, rise uh, means there. 26 past four, you are on the panel. Very nice to have uh, your company here today with Alan McElroy uh, and Victoria McLennan. Now, we had... Such a good response from your best ever concert experiences. I thought I might return to it on a Friday because a great gig is something that stays with you for life. I, for example, can still recall that Engelbert Humperdinck gig 15 years on, 10 guitars, etc. And we got a great response. Here's one, two great concerts in the 80s. Tracy Chapman in Cleveland in a cafe holding around 40 people and most of REM in Athens, Georgia playing at a barbecue in my friend's backyard. Wow, 80 people. Another one here, Peaches at Meow in Wellington. She walked on the crowd's hands, sprayed us with champagne and performed a slow, lewd rendition of it's all coming back to me. It's amazing. See, that's one thing you don't do, Helena. You don't spray your audience with champagne. Okay. Okay. Can, no. I, tell you, can I tell you some concerts I've been to? Just one, yep. Uh, just one. Tom Jones in a small pub in Dublin for some... Uh, Guinness tried to make a new St. Patrick's Day and all these superstars played in pubs. So Tom Jones was playing in a small pub in Dublin. It was insane. That's amazing. Yeah. So you were, you were in close proximity. 
Yeah, well, I wasn't. I was at the. I wasn't in the door. I was outside the door. But you could see him. You could smell him. <laughs> you could smell the leather. Now, with us um, is because quite a few people actually mentioned this Bob Marley concert at Western Springs, nineteen seventy nine. But with us is Wayne, who was there, but in a pretty special capacity. Wayne, welcome to the panel. Yeah, good afternoon, Wallace. Now you were there. What were you doing there? Uh making a documentary with uh, the late Dylan Tate on uh, Bob Marley. Amazing. For a a programme for TV One, I think it was, which Mm. was um, Today at One. Today at One. Remember Today at One. This is amazing, Wayne. So you Mm. were with the the legend, Dylan Tate, filming the Bob Marley concert. Tell us about it. What was, for example, what was the atmosphere like? Uh, Quite... The band were amazing. We, we met them on the bus the night they arrived um, at Mungary Airport, and I got to travel with the band on the bus and struck up uh, a conversation with Junior, who was the guitarist, who seemed really well at ease with the camera. And I asked him, I complimented him on the fact that he was uh, very good in front of the camera, and he told me that he had gone to RADA or some drama academy in London and was quite familiar with cameras. So we, we got on like a house on fire. The concert um, was the following afternoon, late afternoon, April the 20th, I think. And, um, yeah, got to go on stage with uh, Mr. Bob Marley. <laughs> it's it's amazing, Victoria, isn't it? Some of the stories that we hear. Mm, yeah. Oh, it's, it's so cool to hear that story. It's incredible. I have a story. I landed in London um, when I went for my OE in 1988, and we couldn't afford to go, but the free Nelson Mandela concert was on. So we sat in someone's garden outside Wembley and listened. And that's one of my enduring concert memories. Oh, wow. Amazing. Wayne, quite a few people have said it really holds something special, that particular concert. And I, I, I guess this is what you captured on film. There was a real diversity of crowd, you know, from your ordinary folk, your, your, your Marley fans to, you know, your, your, your gang members there, the Mongrel Mob, Black Power there. Yep. Is, is, yep. That, is that the sense that you got from it too? It was really quite something unique? It was very unique because I, I got specific instructions from the management that I was to go no further than... Um, in front of Brita and the I3 who were on the right-hand side of the stage as she looked at it. And so I'm filming there and I've got the camera on a tripod and then I went handheld, took the camera off the tripod and I'm sort of standing behind Brita and the I3 getting over shoulder stuff to the crowd. And then I was only to film jamming completely, the, the, the track jamming, which any Bob Marley fan would know really well. And um, so I'm standing there with the camera on my shoulder now and I dropped to my knees and Bob finished the chorus, dropped back and was dancing with the bass uh, family man Barrett, the bass player. <laughs> Junior started playing his guitar and he started becking me over with his head. <laughs> so I walked on my knees with the camera still filming all the way in front of Reza and the I3 and got to the middle of the stage and then realised Bob was behind me, between me and the I3 where I was supposed to be and Junior's playing his guitar down the lens of the camera. And that um, stuck with me. And at the end of the concert, he asked all the people at Western Springs to welcome Mr. Wayne like it was Mr. Bob. Because he wanted the audience and behind the camera to actually see and feel what he felt when he walked out on Western Springs. Oh. And that was, all, that was all set up. And not many people talk about it, but that was all set up by the most amazing performance by Golden Harvest, the New Zealand boys. 
who Look, played the most incredible set. These are really amazing memories, Wayne. Before you go, um, that so that film that you worked alongside with Dylan Tate, yeah. is, that, is that available to see at all? Uh, there are clips of the interview that we did with Bob um, still on YouTube. Um, I've seen it. I saw it actually 10 years later. I was in Japan and all places on the 10th anniversary of Bob's death and they replayed it on NHK in Japan. So it's still around. Oh, and the, um, yeah. the music the music that we shot is still around as well. Amazing. I might try and see if NZ on screen uh, has it in the archives. But for now, um, yep. Wayne, kia ora. Really great to have your story. Thank you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.